0: Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today, my guest will be Dr. Lacey Ford, who's Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of South Carolina. He's also an eminent historian on religion in early 19th century South Carolina and the American South. Much of this conversation will be based upon Dr. Ford's recent book, Deliver Us from Evil. We decided that we're going to start tonight off with quoting James Henry Thornwell, who was Presbyterian, clergyman, and president of the South Carolina College. As Thornwell said, slavery is implicated in every fiber of Southern society. Lacey, with that, I'm going to toss it to you, particularly with your latter book on dealing with how religious South Carolinians dealt with this question.
1: Walter, that's a very good question. And, and James Thornwell is one of uh, several very interesting members of the white clergy who wrestle with this question. Thornwell is is known primarily among historians and, and uh, religious historians as well as a strong defender of slavery. And he was that. There's no question about it. But he was also a person who offered stern guidance and rebukes to slaveholders for their treatment of slaves if it didn't meet a standard that Thornwell had decided would be the Christian standard for treatment of slaves as a slaveholder. And believe me, he found very few people who met his standard. Uh, He was a slaveholder himself through marriage, and I, I, I think at times he even questioned his own ability to live up to that standard, although he tried And ultimately, as a a colleague of Walter and mine, Professor William Freeling pointed out in an article some years ago, he had kind of an anti-slavery moment. He traveled to Europe uh, and confided into a fellow Presbyterian minister that he was traveling with that when he got back to South Carolina, he was no longer president of the college, uh, that he was going to call for a plan of gradual emancipation because he thought that the standard of Christian stewardship that was necessary to justify holding slaves was not one that a majority of people could meet. And he thought what was morally sound to do was to begin to phase slavery out. Now, he came back, and the the Confederacy was in the process of being formed, and he he participated very vigorously as, as a defender of the Confederacy. But he did, that's how serious his doubts were about whether Christian morality could be lived in a world of slavery.
0: Would you elaborate on what his standards for slave owners?
1: He thought that uh, slave owners needed to recognize the full and common humanity that they had with slaves and the fact that their real ownership was not of them as people, but simply of their work time and their work efforts he believed it was absolutely essential that slaves have the opportunity to be exposed to Christianity, to the gospel, that there be a strong mission to the slaves. And Thornwell also believed that slaves should be taught to read and write, which not Certainly not everyone did, and not everyone who thought there should be a mission to the slaves thought that included reading and writing. And he thought it was an embarrassment to South Carolina that there was a statute prohibiting teaching slaves to read. So those were among his standards. And he, of course, thought there should be what he would call firm discipline, but at no time's cruelty. He thought that there should never be any violations of a Christian sexual practices and and a code of morality around that, which he also knew was not always the case. And I think he spent a lot of his life, and some of the quotes he had in defense of holding slaves are what get quoted. What doesn't get quoted as much, and I try to do in his book, is his stern sort of lecture to slaveholders about how they should exercise that position of power which he saw was a dangerous degree of power. He really did. He wasn't ready to say, you should give it up. But he realized that that much power concentrated was a very dangerous thing. And he preached a very clear message on that over and over again. Well, as we have on previous nights,
0: we've jumped from 1800, 1820 to 1860 because it, it is in many ways, all of, all of one, one piece. Let's back up to South Carolina in the 1790s, 1800, go back to the origins of Southern radicalism. People think about, OK, well, Thornwell, in his later life, later antebellum period, he was pro-slave. Every religious denomination in the state of South Carolina was pro-slavery, every one of them. The Roman Catholic bishop and diocese owned slaves. but. In the 1790s and 1800s, in the back country, not everybody thought, even with the expansion of the Cotton Kingdom, that slavery was necessarily a good idea.
1: That's correct, and I I think everybody, one, one point I tried to make, what we call frequently the Old South, or the South before the Civil War, or the antebellum South, was itself a historic creation, and existed primarily from around 1810 and 1820, to 1860, and it was a product of its own historical forces that had not yet all come into play until, as Walter said, around the 1790s. And what we would later call the Old South was, I think, created by three or four very clear things. One was the expansion, which you've, you've heard in a, in a previous session the expansion of cotton cultivation far into the backcountry, into the upcountry, of the short fiber or short staple cotton that could be grown geographically across a broad expanse of the south, kind of from the P.D. River in the east to the Sabine River in Texas in the west, and m- many places of, that weren't high altitude uh, in between. That expansion of slavery, of a cash crop culture into the South Carolina interior uh, transformed it very dramatically. But it wasn't a transformation that occurred without confrontation. It was also a period of the rapid expansion of the more evangelical religious denomination and their influence, particularly, again, in South Carolina, and we'll confine ourselves to that for the moment, into the South Carolina upcountry Baptist and Methodist, uh, even Presbyterians were evangelical to an extent, and they began to have greater sway. The the back country had been largely unchurched, maybe not unchristian, but certainly unchurched. In other words, there were scattered churches here and there which held services once every three or four weeks and that sort of thing. But by during the, the second Great Awakening, which really hit South Carolina, with some vigor around 1804, you get a proliferation not only in the number of people who are church members, but in the number of churches. They begin to grow rapidly. They begin to exert a greater influence on the society of the upcountry. The demand for a labor force to grow short staple cotton, not only in South Carolina, but across the Lower South, brought together what had been four sort of sub-regional cultures of slavery rice in South Carolina, sugar in Louisiana, tobacco in Virginia and Maryland, hemp in small parts of Kentucky, into a more regional culture for slaves as slaves from all of these other areas were purchased and brought to the South to grow uh, short staple cotton and, and change the nature of slavery in the South from. Sort of four separate sub regional cultures to one single sort of cotton culture. And in these early days, there were certainly resistance to all of this. Many of the early backcountry or upcountry evangelicals had serious qualms about slavery. Some of them even had serious qualms about making too much money, which may not sound like evangelicals we know today, but they. <laughs> but, but it was true. And uh, they liked the kind of simple, uh, step above subsistence economy they lived in. It thought it kept things like usury and greed to a minimum. And they they also were, were very concerned about bringing slavery in. But ultimately, the profit that could be made and the improvement in standard of living that could be made by growing cotton, even if you only grew it with your own family, as many of them did, or with one or two slaves, as many more of them did, uh, Was such an increase in the, the level of comfort they could have that they succumbed to that temptation?
0: Last week we, we mentioned that really beginning about 1810, the Quakers began moving. Out. They gave up South Carolina pretty they much did. because of because of slavery. But individual Baptist congregations, even that late, still had qualms about it, and the Methodist Book of Discipline if I'm not mistaken, you could not be a clergyman if you owned slaves, at least for part of this, this time.
1: That That's correct.
0: It's interesting how the different denominations wrestle with this. The Episcopalians published a catechism for slaves. Individual Baptist congregations petitioned the General Assembly, not just for this period, but up to 1860, to be allowed to teach their slaves to read because you were supposed to be a good Baptist, you had to be able to read the Bible, the priesthood of all believers. And if you couldn't read it, how could you be a real believer?
1: Walter is exactly right on that. And that's one of the key points in my book. And one of the, I think, most interesting things to talk about today is that the Baptist in particular, as as you know, had it as part of their, their firm belief that, Every believer, first of all, you know, you want everyone to be a believer, and every believer should have their personal access to Holy Scripture. And you, to get it, they thought you should be able to read. ARPs, which were a, a small kind of you know, splinter denomination of Presbyterians that were almost exclusively based in South Carolina, felt that way just as strongly as the Baptists did. And ARPs ran schools teaching slaves to read even after that was banned and under threat of law. And they'd have people up here in the legislature who'd write home and say, shut the school down for a week or two, they're going to send some people out to check on you. Uh, That's how strongly they believed in it. The Methodist and Presbyterians also being Protestant and believing in the priesthood of believers. Had certainly strong components of their con- of their congregations and and their clergy believed in teaching slaves to read, although it wasn't as uniform among them. Episcopalians were more comfortable that slaves could be taught orally without access to to reading, uh, although not all of not all Episcopalians believed that. So that was kind of the way, and and that was a fairly fierce debate. And you may ask, well. What's wrong with teaching slaves to read and write? The ability to communicate, of slaves to communicate of themselves and perhaps plan some sort of rebellion or some sort of concerted action was, great, was a great matter of concern. Even though there was plenty of evidence that that kind of communication could go on through oral networks that were quite widespread and sophisticated, that was a, that was a big concern. And also, the mere fact that you might read about news that things weren't the same everywhere, and they weren't the same in Ohio as they were in South Carolina, was, was, was a great concern. But for, for many South Carolinians, especially those from evangelical denominations, it was very difficult for them to accept any sort of legal restriction on teaching slaves to read and write. A wonderful example of this, I think, is the children and grandchildren of William Hill, who was something of a prominent Revolutionary War hero for running the ironworks up in York County, Hills Ironworks, and his partnership with a Charlestonian to supply iron to support the Revolutionary War effort. His children and grandchildren living on his plantation near the Catawba River in New York County taught a slave who had something as an infant that we would probably now call polio and lost the use of his legs to read and write so he could be useful. And this particular slave learned to read and write extremely well and encountered Baptist revivalists, became a member of a a Baptist church. And he could read and write so well, absorbed so many books, that he became a prominent preacher in the county in the 1850s and drew, according to records, large mixed-race crowds to his sermons because they were so powerful. And that was an interesting interesting thing. And he was actually freed at some point by the Hill family for the reason that he was not very valuable as a slave and he, he could make his own way, which he did very well. And during Reconstruction, he became a prominent leader of the African American community in that area. And therefore we have some record of him and he was a, a quite articulate person.
0: Well, that there, there were at least one or two other either slaves or, or they were freed who became Baptist clergy. And mm-hmm. in the Upper Piedmont were the clergy at all white congregations. Now, see, we're talking about things that people don't, don't understand. That th- right. this is This happens in a society which is overwhelming African-American, very concerned about slave rebellions. They're very concerned, with, again, with the slave codes and the laws. And you have a black man preaching to a white congregation, basically talking about their salvation. Now, think about the contradiction in terms in the urban areas, in Charleston and here in Columbia, where some of the major denominations had affiliated black congregations under the control of white clergy. First Presbyterian Church, for example. Trinity here did not, but in Charleston, the Presbyterian Church, and uh, St. Philip's and St. Michael had Calvary. And one of the things was, if you read the guidance that comes with the catechisms and what have you, There's a lot of emphasis on Paul, a lot of emphasis on the New Testament, and slaves obey your masters. Mm -hmm. Not a whole lot of
1: exodus.
0: (laughs) But then how, and many of what are considered the spirituals that spread across the South began in the low country of South Mm -hmm. Carolina. How do you explain, go down Moses? How do you explain all of these songs that are based upon the Exodus theme, If they, where did they pick it up? Listen, Lacey was talking about reading and writing wasn't the only thing that was sure. important in terms of communication. When someone is waiting on the table in a fancy dining room down on Meeting Street in Charleston, who's standing at the back of the room listening to the conversation? And if you've invited the preacher from the Priest, I didn't call him a priest in those days, but the clergyman from St. Philip's to St. Michael's, and they were talking about religion at the table, who's picking it up?
1: Another example of key clergymen that some of you may be familiar with, or at least the, the name, Richard Furman, who was the leader of the, he unified the various Baptist, disparate Baptist denominations in South Carolina. He was really a generation older than Thornwell, and his heyday was in the 18-teens and 1820s. and he was a prominent pastor at the First Baptist Church in Charleston in 1820. And his church at that time in Charleston was 400 whites and 1,600 African-Americans, a mixture of slave and, and free. And Furman was a strong advocate of religious instruction of slaves and a strong advocate of teaching slaves to read and write. And I think he was one of the few people in the aftermath of the Denmark Vesey insurrection scare in 1822, a scare in which no whites were actually harmed by slaves, but over 40 slaves and free blacks were given the death penalty for conspiring. Furman stood up and said, you cannot turn this into a crusade against the mission to the slaves, which the political leadership was beginning to do. And he, he very bravely did that. Now, the Methodist had even larger, and this was in, in Charleston as well and throughout the Country. the Methodist had even larger congregations and larger percentage of slaves in their congregations than the Baptists did. and again, to, to make a little bit light of it, you know, Baptists are very concerned when somebody's attracting more converts than they are. <laughs> and so there was, Furman was constantly engaged in some dialogue with other Baptist preachers about what it was that the Methodists are doing that we're not doing. <laughs> so this was, the, this was the way they thought about it. For the, all of the major churches in Charleston, most of which are still there, including both of the prominent Episcopal churches, uh, First Baptist, First Scots, Presbyterian, Second Presbyterian, all of the and leading Methodist churches all had very large slave memberships in the 1820s and beyond. And that was just part of life in the city of, the city of Charleston. Now, there were differences of opinion about what worship service they could, should attend and what the proper mode of instruction was. Charles C. Jones, who had relatives in Charleston, he lived on a plantation in Georgia and visited there often and talked with prominent local clergy, wrote the Presbyterian version of the catechism that the Episcals had had put out about how you could give oral instruction to slaves without teaching them to read and write. Jones really didn't believe that there's anything wrong with teaching them to read and write, but he was willing not to fight public opinion in some way, so he came up with this catechism. But Jones himself said that in his congregation, which was largely slaves down in Georgia when he preached, he had great crowds. And then one Sunday he preached on slaves obey your masters, and nobody came the next <laughs> week. <way. laughs> and he talked. He talked to one of the, the African-American worship leaders, who helped him work in the slave community. And they said, well, you know, that probably wasn't the right message. <laughs> and he, he started, he backed away from it. He didn't say anything against what he'd said before, but he just preached about other things for a while. And gradually, his congregation began to, uh, to come back. So some of these stories at the micro level are really, really quite interesting, I think. And
0: publicly, people might say, OK, we, we're a slave society. But then, like Jacob, they were wrestling it was, a, it was a moral issue. And we've just talked about the men, but frequently in plantation households, it was the women who taught slaves how to read and write. John Bilton O'Neill, I think, mentioned when, every now and then the General Assembly would get exercised about this. You know, there's a, the ARPs have got their schools up there in due west and something's going on in Charleston. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are these petitions and, he made a comment to the effect All right, gentlemen, you want to enforce that, then your wives and daughters are going to jail. That's who's breaking the law right and left. Whether it's Mary Chestnut, who did it, or the wife of a Piedmont farmer. And so here, you know, you get the image of the solid South in terms of the white structure and the African American community. But it's a complicated story. (laughs) It really is a complicated story. And I think it's important to try to understand that complication. When people wrestle with moral issues, and then is this good or bad, not everybody does what the Quakers do and leave the state, or as a Buford planter did sell his slaves, and move to Kentucky, and then come back in 1863 and read the Emancipation Proclamation in Beaufort, the first time it's read in the American South. Those were rare cases. Those were rare.
1: I think Walter hits on another good point here. There is no way to know this conclusively. There's just not. The historical record doesn't allow you to discover it, and I don't think anybody will ever figure figure a way around it, but there were probably more women with deep reservations about slavery than there were men among the white population. The evidence that we do have suggests that. Not that there weren't men, but there were probably more women than men. Could even be the fact that there were more women church members in this period than there were men. That might be a correlation to look at, but I think the, the concern that women had on this issue was, was clearly a, a sort of driving force. Now, what I tried to study in particular was the opposition that this group of, of whites, led by clergy but followed by many active laymen, who wanted to ha- to have an, an active Christian mission to enslaved African Americans in South Carolina, and those who absolutely wanted to make sure that effort was hemmed in and limited and rendered as as safe and and non-dangerous as it could possibly be. And there was a lot of tension. There was a tension during the Second Great Awakening over this. Uh, There was a tension after the Denmark, a few years later, after the Denmark Vesey Insurrection Scare. There was tension in the middle of the 1830s when the legislature was debating more restrictions after abolitionists began to send pamphlets south through the mail. And there were tensions again in the 1850s over this, particularly as some of the larger and more prominent Christian churches began to establish, as Walter alluded to, separate facilities for the worship of their black membership. And it was, it was an ongoing tension and debate that erupted several times. In Charleston in the late 1840s, when the Episcopals and the Presbyterians for Second Presbyterians began to construct separate facilities for African-American worship, which they were going to supervise very carefully, a mob turned down and burned down the Episcopal building. And James Pettigrew emerged with the mayor and said, "Are you people crazy? Do you know what can happen if you set a fire in Charleston? <laughs> you, know? Yeah, you, you know, we can't be sure we're going to stop it." And they they didn't actually burn it down, but it, it was stalled in pro- in its process for a long time. And Pettigrew had a certain moral and civil authority to to sort of calm calm the mob down. The associate pastor at Second Presbyterian in Charleston was was John Adger. Uh, son of James Adger, the the famous merchant and exporter, uh, a family of great wealth in Charleston at that time, and one of the Richards' families in the whole South. And somehow, John Adger got the Second Presbyterian facility up and running pretty fast, I suspect he had some generous family support in getting the building built. So there there were prominent Charlestonians in support of the effort, and there were also prominent Charlestonians who opposed the effort very, very vigorously, including members of the Rhett family who, who were devout themselves, but simply uh, did not believe this was the right thing to do.
0: Well, if, if you read the meetings, and in this case, uh, read the, not, not just readings, but publications of Baptist Messenger, um, the Methodist publications, you read the journals of the Episcopal Diocese of South Carolina, Beginning about 1812, 1814, this is an issue how to deal with Christianizing the slaves, that was the term, or the mission to the slaves. Mm-hmm. This comes up time and time again. And it's not just a moral issue about owning slaves. The sanctity of slave families is something that gets debated, not in this period, but in the 1840s and the 1850s. The Reverend John Glennie, who was an Episcopal priest in Christ Church Parish actually married slaves. Slaves were married here in Trinity. But that's only within the church, within the, within the civil law of South Carolina, those marriages were not valid. There was no registry for slave marriages. But this this was an issue that if you, it's not just the ownership, it's the whole moral issue. You want You wanna have a family, the idea of breaking up a family, the idea that they'd be properly married was, again, something that, folks were wrestling with.
1: This happened very clearly in the late 1850s when the Adger's successor as associate pastor at Second Presbyterian, uh, John Guirido, uh, not only married enslaved African-Americans but baptized enslaved African-Americans in the Second Presbyterian Church. And he got extreme criticism for this. But he's, that church backed him, and he stayed there well into the Reconstruction period. He was not driven away by this criticism. And it rested, as Walter say, around his belief that in the sanctity of the family, his belief the Presbyterian belief in infant baptism. He baptized infants who were in slave families. And he, he took a fair amount of credit for doing it in the same service that sometimes he was baptizing white children. This was controversial and it caused a controversy at the time, but he, he did not lose his position at that church over that.
0: Mr. Glenning went even so far as to purchase a ring, which was church property that was used in the wedding ceremony in Christ Church Parish just outside Charleston. So, I mean, it's symbolic, but uh, again, it's, it's part of the complicated story. That's the, it's really the history of all of us. Those of us who are white had forebears debating these issues. Baptism, and the Episcopal Church is not, the baptism was not a problem. Taking communion was a problem. Is that part of one group or do we have a separate service? Each individual parish clergyman handled that on a, on a different basis. But all of these had to do with the way that the, the churches worked. But publicly by the time you get much beyond our, our period of 1850, All the religious publications, despite what debate was going on, Thornwell, everybody else had pretty much fallen into line.
1: Yeah, there's no question about the fact that the debate in South Carolina was about what position white churches should take with regard to the mission to enslave African Americans. There was not any substantial degree of sentiment that slavery was inherently wrong which may be hard for us to understand, but there was no real debate over whether slavery was inherently wrong. It was only whether it could be properly managed according to Christian precepts. And most of these people thought it could. As bizarre as they may sound to us today, most of them thought it could. But they spent a lot of time convincing the rest of the population that that was even a question that needed needed to be asked. There was very little, almost no, pro-emancipation sentiment in South Carolina. There was somewhat more in some other slaveholding states, but not in South Carolina. No, not
0: not even the question of something like the American Colonization Society really had much of a hearing in South Carolina. That was the idea of freeing purchase, freeing slaves and sending them back to Africa, to Liberia. Mm-hmm which, interestingly, after the Civil War, South Carolina's connection with Liberia was extremely close. Methodist clergy were, were trained at Allen University here in Columbia and went to Liberia as as missionaries.
1: And, and Walter, again, is right. In, in Virginia, for example, there, were, there was a very ro- robust amount of support. I won't say majority, certainly, but robust support for the American Colonization Society, whose first president, as I recall, was Francis Scott Key, who... You know, wrote what we now know as the national anthem from Maryland, who had been a slaveholder himself, and Henry Clay of Kentucky, a slaveholding, prominent uh, politician. But that didn't get much traction in South Carolina at all. Benjamin Palmer, who was the pastor of the Circular Congregational Church in Charleston, tried to get a hearing for the ideas of the American Colonization Society, and did not.
0: Well, Lacey, is it it too basic to say, coming back to our period, that moral questions aside, it really got down to a matter of dollar and cents?
1: Yes. Probably the greatest tension that, we'll go back to the 1800 to 1820 period when Cotton was moving into the interior of the state at a great pace. There was a concern in these areas, which had previously been overwhelmingly white, not exclusively, but overwhelmingly, about the large numbers of new African Americans who were coming into their community as slaves workers. There was a concern about their safety. There was concern about how that population would be controlled, in their words. And then there was a possibility of making a lot of money uh, by continuing to bring those people in. And there was, if you look at it, and I actually have, county by county, you can see these moments where there's a tension, where there's pushback to the new cotton economy based on, is slavery really safe? Do we really have to do this? Is it really worth it? And then the answer to that question coming in being, yes, if we can make a lot more money (laughs) by doing this, we'll do it, and the people who don't like it can leave. And that's kind of what happened. Yeah, and
0: you dealt with this in Origins for the Radicalism as, white election districts flipped either to black majority or became overwhelmingly black majority. And and in our last conversation, we talked about the black belt, as they called it in South Carolina, expanded. By the time you get to 1860, 36 of 40 election districts in South Carolina are black majority. And a number of those that are white majority are just barely white majority. Every district in the state, except for Greenville, had a plantation owner who owned more than 100 slaves. So we're talking about Oconee, Spartanburg, which, by the way, also had a large tenant farming population, white, white tenant farming population. So you think who might be concerned about increased black population? Are you going to have a white tenant? Are you going to
1: buy a slave? And there, were, there, were, there was real tension there. And, and- a higher percentage of the geographic area of South Carolina could grow short staple cotton profitably than as a percentage of any other state. I mean, ultimately it could be grown more profitably in places like the Mississippi Delta or East Texas, but as a percentage of the state, there was nowhere that was more suitable for cotton Time between frost, basically, mm-hmm. was was the limit. And the closer you were to a river, the richer the soil was like to be. And our rivers reach way into the interior, as you know, and sometimes all the way into North Carolina. It was, uh, we were the leader of the first cotton. boom, As Professor Peter Kaklanis said in the first one of these sessions, as difficult as it is to kind of imagine today, Abbeville County, South Carolina, or Abbeville District, it was known, was sort of the center of agriculture innovation in the world. Between 1800 and 1820, rich people, scientific people, were visiting Abbeville District like people go to Silicon Valley to to figure out how things are happening today. Uh, and well, no, I mean,
0: folks, that 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 is important because they were developing, constantly developing, better strains of cotton for the market, and as. Uh, Dr. Kirklina said, had they been, in those days, a patent for seed production like there is today, for South Carolina you'd have had page after page after page, but, and it was centered there in in Abbeville.
1: And this, this, it was a period of, of rapid expansion. I, I say in my book that harshly put, people had to make the choice between fear and greed. I guess another less harsh way of putting it is they had to make a choice between profit and safety. And in both case, they, they chose a higher standard of living, uh, and a little more risk yeah. for themselves and, and a little more moral complication. And
0: remember when they're moving into the back country, this is the area of Jeffersonian democracy with a little d. Big Jeffersonian. They are not real They don't really care about the folks in the low country too much. I mean, no, they do not. They're yeoman farmers and These are the folks who, as the denominations, moved into the back country. It's hard, when we think of the the Piedmont today or the upcountry, we immediately think of, uh, the terms used as the Bible Belt of South Carolina. In 1790, that was not the case. There were very few churches. You sometimes had a large, something like Long Cane's Presbyterian, which attracted people in Abbeville, and then Fair Forest Baptist in Spartanburg. But the Methodists had circuit riders. They were meeting in brush harbors. In
1: 1790 and maybe even as late as 1800, if there was a Bible Belt in South Carolina, believe it or not, it was on the peninsula of Charleston where the established churches were. By 1820 or so, you're beginning to see this phenomenon of scores of reasonably viable churches and congregations scattered throughout the rest of the state, mostly Methodist, secondarily Baptist, Thirdly, Presbyterian, some other, and some Episcopalians in the towns. Rarely
0: Episcopalian, but don't forget that you have the Lutherans in the center of the state. But they they were not part of the expansion. They stayed in Orangeburg, Lawrence, and Newberry counties. And Richard Furman actually was played a major role in the Baptist expansion into the to the backcountry.
1: He did, even though he was a pastor in Charleston. His family estate was in the high hills of Santee, over here in. Beyond, just beyond Sumter today, and that was his key role, was bringing the, the backcountry Baptist churches in league with the, with the Lowcountry Baptist churches. And, and so
0: they're the folks now who are, when you, the churches are moving in there, they're moving in at the same time that Cotton is moving in. That's right.
1: And they're land-owning farmers, generally, initially, without slaves. Yeah. And they're, they're sort of the backbone of the, of the upcountry, as it was called then, uh, population. Probably most people in this room have lived long enough to know that the phrase upstate is a modern creation of how to refer to a portion of the state. It's historically not a term you would have seen before, what, Walter, 1980 or something like that?
0: And the Midlands is an invented term. (laughs) (laughs) It was invented by the state newspaper back in the 1950s. Uh, in, In the 19th century, the terms that were used were low country, middle country, and up country. Now, wouldn't you really rather be from the middle country than the Midlands? <laughs> I mean, everybody thinks that's, that's that's a catchy term. But if you're from the Midlands in England, that's the Rust Belt. I mean, I don't know. Middle country has a more genteel. <laughs> Can't trust them journalists. <laughs>
1: I will say, but thank goodness they were around 200 years ago to leave us some record of things that were going on. Old newspapers are part of the historian's lifeblood, to say
0: for sure. All right, well, well, Lacey, you want to start taking some questions or anything else you'd like to talk about before we turn the floor over to questions? No, I'm
1: happy to take questions.
0: Okay. I'm new to this, and I don't want to sound stupid. (laughs) But the one thing that I'm thinking about is I think of that period in history as everyone, for the most part, was associated with the church. Am I wrong?
1: Yes. uh, I think that's one of the things that we feel is that there was some time, long ago, a time when everybody was associated with church. But you can look pretty, pretty clear records that indicate that in the 1790s, not more than one out of every four south carolinians was affiliated with any church now by 1820 or 30 it would get up to maybe more like 3 out of 4 and then since then you know it goes it has its ups and downs but Part of it was the density of population simply did not allow the successful form and formation and maintenance of many churches. You, churches couldn't afford to have a minister of their own. They had to rely on an itinerant. This doesn't mean people were completely, it means they were unchurched. It doesn't mean they had been. they were unexposed to some version of Christianity or they were infidels would have been the word for them at the time (laughs) doesn't mean that but it does mean that they were they were largely unchurched
0: so my big question is when they were having this debate and these churches and these what i would have considered believers were standing against this who were the people in the assembly or in other places who did they not attend churches and they did not believe or
1: it, it wasn't that neat. There were many believers on different sides of issues. Not everybody who was, a, I mean, even today, right? Not all church members agree on all manner of political topics. Uh, I you know, suspect there's pretty wide disagreement, in fact. And,
0: and, well, actually, Lacey, given the fact that there were property qualifications in South Carolina for being members of the General Assembly. It's true. You're going to find that the Episcopalians and Presbyterians were way overrepresented, as opposed to Methodists and Baptists, and they would more than likely, particularly from the Low Country, which had the majority of the seats, they were members of churches.
1: From also from what we can tell from the nature of the revivals and the the, the awakening and the conversion process. There were reasonably large numbers, not all, but of the of the unchurched who were not believers and hadn't had any systematic exposure to Christianity. I think we kind of look backwards and think there was a time when everybody was this way, but that really is it's not held up by the historical evidence. Dr. Ford, would you comment, please, sir, on the Edgefield tradition? I can take the easy way out and say that I, I wrote an article the Edgefield Tradition you can still find in the South Carolina Historical Magazine from about 1996, and I hold forth on that for about 20 pages, and probably people don't want to hear all that tonight. <laughs> but a short way of putting it is edge, Edgefield was a district on the edge. It was on the edge of the low country and the up country, it had some rich plantation areas. It had some desperately poor sandhills-dominated areas up toward Lexington. It had some some riverlands, you know, near the Savannah. It was a huge county. It was politically a difficult county to run for office in because it was so big by the standards of that time, and you had to ride around on horses uh, to get around and. It, produced all kind of crazy alliances you know if you if you can get me some votes up there in the area that's near Trenton I'll help you down in the area along the Savannah River it was a pretty turbulent place and it uh, it never attained any political prominence which is what I say in this article in the pre-Civil War period I mean it had its share of representation in the general assembly but it produced very few major political leaders, uh, but in the post-Civil War period, as many of you know, it, it, it spawned Ben Tillman and Strom Thurmond, and it's been a much more politically important county.
0: Edgefield and Barnwell the two largest counties in the state, and Edgefield got, all right, Aiken, Greenwood, Saluda, McCormick, all got chipped out of Edgefield.
1: Am I correct in thinking that the uh, milling of this cotton we were producing was being uh, milled mostly in New England or shipped uh, to Portland? It was being shipped mostly to Great Britain and secondarily to New England. Yeah.
0: Generally, what was the reason that they segregated the churches?
1: Basically, a fundamental belief among many whites that the in in racial inequality and that it was not appropriate for them to worship together. There was also a, a, a subtly different distinction between the fact that obviously the the enslaved African-American population was less educated than the white population and that finding that an appropriate message for a unified audience was difficult. But both of those were in play. And,
0: and, and you find, and this, I think this is mostly true of Presbyterian and Episcopal clergy, when there were, particularly on, in the rural areas, African-Americans took to their new religion with great enthusiasm. And that just did not go down with God's frozen chosen. Uh, <laughs> no, seriously, that they talk about it was inappropriate to have enthusiasm to say, amen, or hallelujah. Uh, to sing, you were supposed to sit there for an hour and a half or two-hour sermons and be informed. And and that that's one reason why the Methodists and Baptists made such great inroads, too, is they understood that, yes, singing was good. You didn't need to preach for quite as long.
1: Walter is exactly right. The Methodists kind of pioneered it with allowing more active and enthusiastic worship. And you you can even see this in the writings of Richard Furman, but others as well. The Baptists wrestled with it finally, and finally they said, look, if this is what we have to do to grow, this is is what we'll do.
0: In fact, the term was the enthusiasm of Methodists.
1: That was an 18th century term.
0: Did the to bring
1: any of their religious beliefs with them? Oh, yeah, I mean, that's an, another side of the story that, that I haven't focused on tonight, is, is they certainly did, and those beliefs very, very much shaped the way they heard the message of Christianity. And some of them, of course, had been exposed to it in one sh- shape or another before. We know now, through a lot of great research that's been done over the last 35 or 40 years, that the message that the slaves received, accepted, and internalized even from white preachers and teachers was very different from the lessons that those preachers and teachers thought they were teaching. And they applied those belief, those, those teachings based on their condition mm-hmm. and the religious views that they previously have and formed among themselves often with religious leaders arising from their midst, sometimes with the sanction of the white pastors and sometimes not, and it created a kind of an invisible institution of an an African-American Protestant church in the American South. It was mostly invisible to many white eyes, Uh, and it served as the... really, after emancipation, that invisible institution was the rock of the formation of free African American communities. And one of the first things that happens in most places is as soon as the opportunity permits, there are African American churches established. Uh, there had been a few established before, but after emancipation, they're established quickly. They grow in large numbers, and they immediately it's not like it takes a long time for them to surface and grow. They kind of pop up overnight and have pastors. The strength of the, the Christian faith among significant portions of the enslaved African-American population is unquestioned. That they emphasized the same passages and interpreted scripture in the same way that their white teachers and preachers did, it's also it was very clear that, that they did not.
0: Yeah. Well, to to back to his question, did they bring their native beliefs with them. Yes, they did. We we know now from archaeological evidence mm-hmm. the Bakanga religion, which water and crossing from this world to the next is a very important. And the waterways of the low country are filled with the remnants of these bowls that have an X on the bottom, and that was a, that was a vessel that was used in the Bakonga services. But the shout, the religious dance, those were worship practices that they brought with them that were then incorporated into their Christian
1: worship. Anybody else? There's one other thing I wanted to say before we close, if that's all right. I had the the great honor of being asked to participate in, in writing an essay for a book that honors Walter Edgar as citizen scholar. It's just out from USC Press. Walter's not getting anything out of the book except honor.
0: <laughs> <laughs> us retired but, faculty need something. <laughs> uh,
1: but it's a really fine book of essays and USC Press. And Bob Brinkmeyer, the direct, current director of the Institute for Southern Studies who edited it, deserve a great thanks for all of us for bringing those people, who all of whom had connections to Walter, had worked with him over the years, and had something we hope is mildly interesting about South Carolina history to say for a cause that Walter has done so much to elaborate and and bring to the public over many years.
0: (laughs) This is Walter Edgar and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know I did. The conversation with Dr. Lacey Ford ranged far beyond its original intent, and that is religion and South Carolina and the institution of slavery. We talked about South Carolina history in general. It was a wonderful conversation, just the kind of conversation I would have with a friend sitting on the dock at Edisto talking about my favorite subject, the state of South Carolina. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.